Hello and welcome to The Beautiful Game, a series exploring personal improvement and resiliency through interviews with soccer coaches from around the world. Beautiful Game is brought to you by Weasels FC, a brand for the tenacious, quick-witted, and occasionally underestimated. I am your host, Tony Niccolo. Join me as we learn to live, work, and play better with more confidence, resilience, and success. So I'm here in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, with the head coach of women's soccer at the University of North Carolina, has won over 20 national championships in the NCAA, a world championship when, unfortunately, before the days when women's soccer was respected enough to be considered the World Cup in 1991, is the head coach of the United States. Really one of the all-time great coaches, you know, shows up on the ESPN list of best coaches, not just in soccer or women's soccer, but in coaching in general. You know, I think that the world in 20 years from now will have no problem saying Smith, Wooden, Cruyff, Busby, Dorrance. So amazing to be here with you today, Anson. Well, thank you for that uh, extraordinary introduction. I need you to come back and reintroduce me to my wife. I think she's forgotten all this stuff. We're overlooking your eponymous stadium today, and I think it's pretty good that you like all sorts of sports because there are some funny lines out there on your pitch. Well, uh, you've got to be the only guy that's ever interviewed me that knows even what eponymous means. So first of all, congratulations. That's extraordinary. Your education certainly has to be well beyond mine. But yes, the stadium doubles as a lacrosse stadium. We share it with our two national championship lacrosse programs. We share it with our national championship men's soccer program as well. So we've got you know, four uh, teams here that uh, like to compete at a high collegiate level. And so right now, yeah, the lines are lacrosse lines. And heck, you're a Canadian. What do you have against, uh, or you're living in Canada, you're, what do you've got against the lacrosse lines here? No, no problem with lacrosse lines. We have, we have a problem in Canada where there aren't enough fields, and so people play ultimate on our soccer pitches, which is okay. You know, maybe a step too far. You know, I get it. I get it. So Beautiful Game is sponsored by a brand called Weasels FC. And so I'd like to start off by asking you what you think of, not the brand, but the animal, Weasel. My only connection with the weasel is from the pop goes the. So that's the, the only, I guess, connection I have with weasel. But obviously, in most contexts, not a very positive connotation. So I guess uh, that would be uh, what I think of it. Fair enough. The reason why I love weasels is because everyone either thinks of them as this sort of negative, sneaky animal that, you know, will kill you and move into your house, which is part of their backstory for sure. But they're really tenacious, quick-witted, and often underestimated. And doing the, the background research of, of you and your story, I actually think that the weasel is an animal that you would love based on its fundamental characteristics. But I don't really want to talk about weasels or, or really even about football today. I think of two poems as I thought of what I wanted to talk to you about today. One is Walt Whitman's Song of Myself, the famous line about containing multitudes and, and as a result, contradicting myself. And then a poem which you are admittedly a fan of by Rudyard Kipling, If. And I think that popularly, that's a poem that's thought, what's it like to have character? What's it like to overcome adversity? But in your case, I think that the important thing that I want to focus on is how do you overcome triumph and develop a, a pattern of sustained success? 
Well, first of all, uh, you've picked a brilliant poem because he actually talks about triumph and disaster and treating both just the same because uh, obviously you should. If your life is in the right balance, you shouldn't be living on extremes. You should have an equanimity that allows you to live life, you know, regardless of what's going on, uh, more or less the same way. Obviously, it's very difficult for people to do that. A lot of people live on roller coasters based on what's happening around them. If we basically sacrifice ourselves to the environment, then all of us are in trouble. And that's where I was intrigued when you wanted to speak to me about resilience, because I really think that's an underestimated quality that all of us should sort out to make sure we bring it into our personalities so that we can survive life, because life is difficult. One of the few areas where I really think athletics can contribute to growth is in this area. Honestly, I talk to my kids about this all the time. Athletics for us uh, ranks third in my moral imperative to have an impact on the young women I'm coaching. We consider the most critical thing in their four-year growth pattern here at the University of North Carolina to be a character growth. We consider the second most critical area to be their academic growth. And then finally, uh, we talk about the soccer platform. If you came to our banquet, which was relatively recently, two weekends ago, the top award at our banquet is not MVP. It's the uh, Kelly Muldoon Award for character. So for me, that's my moral imperative. I want to take these young women that uh, whose parents trusted me to take care of them to see if I could take them to their human potential. So for me, these things are sacrosanct. My uh, sort of North Star, and I consider sport, a way to try to get them there. Because let's face it, it doesn't really matter whether or not you win or lose a game in the larger scope of things. Uh, I mean, sports is just a platform for us to enjoy ourselves, certainly challenge ourselves, certainly explore ourselves. But let's face it, the winning and losing in sport doesn't really make any difference. Although obviously it feels so visceral in some ways, it does make a difference. But what I think it has value for, even in the ivory tower, even in the context of a university environment, I think it has value in that um, it's a very emotional environment that uh, you're involved in. And I think the lessons from it are constant, and I think uh, they're valuable. So for me, I love what I get to do, and I love the challenge of uh, taking these extraordinary human beings to uh, their extraordinary potential. On the topic of human development and leading people to their potential, I was DMing with one of your recent graduates, Bridget Andrzejewski. And, you know, she talked about the loss that you just had in the, the final against Stanford, that it didn't really break her. It, it strengthened the team bond and makes her appreciate the work ethic here. And that what she really spoke about was that you have taught her core values and leadership and character and that you give them assignments to memorize things and reading that they need to do to develop personally and leadership books. When did you start doing things like that? And how did you know it was working? Well, honestly, I'm not one of these people that really thinks you can actually teach leadership. In fact, uh, I think my collegiate coaching career, in my opinion, is a list of all my leadership failures. Because I try every spring, I, you know, pull these topics out of the air that I think I'm going to sort of transform my culture with and taking people to their leadership potential. And then invariably, when I do a self-assessment, at the end of the four years that I've had the young woman, I basically fail myself in it, which is why uh, it's extraordinary how many leadership platforms I'm given an opportunity to speak in. 
And I always tell the person that's hired me to speak in some leadership platform, listen, if someone asks me if I can teach leadership, I'm going to say no. So if you want to screen the questions that I get, I don't want to, you know, cash your check for coming up here to pretend to teach leadership and then admit to everyone in the room, I don't think you can teach it. I think we so all... is this an area where, where the game really is the teacher? Well, no, I think the human being is the vessel and they have to decide whether or not they want to impact. And you can't transform them. You can certainly nudge someone down a continuum from an extraordinary leader to someone that doesn't want to lead at all. But you can't really teach leadership. I mean, people think you can teach tools and you can teach this and you can teach that. But I've tried to teach everything. And, you know, I've got to be honest with myself. I have had some extraordinary leaders. I don't take credit for their leadership. I mean, these were extraordinary leaders when I got them. And all I did was give them an opportunity to lead. I've taken, you know, I guess, collections of people and tried to convert them into leaders. I've got this thing I stole from Urban Meyer called the, the Leadership Council. And on our Leadership Council is one freshman, one sophomore, one junior, and then the entire senior class. So if I would give myself credit for being this leadership guru, I would assume the entire senior class would be extraordinary leaders because I teach leadership constantly, and yet they're not. We have some that even ignore personal leadership. And obviously there's a progression if you do want to lead. The first person you have an opportunity to lead is yourself. And let's face it, if you don't lead yourself, you're not going to be able to lead anyone else. I mean, we talk about having the credibility to lead. You know, if you've got a fitness session going on and uh, you're screaming at the whole team to work hard and you finish last in every sprint, you're not going to have much credibility to lead. So obviously a part of the platform to lead anyone is to be effective in leading yourself in these different categories. So I, I talk about all these different progressions in leadership, but honestly, at the end of the day, I don't give myself a very high grade. But you do teach resilience and fitness is one of the things that you do to teach that. You also use fitness a bit to teach sort of mentality and, and mental skills around resilience. Are there other things that you use to teach resilience? Actually, uh, the character piece is the most interesting piece that uh, I've ever done. And honestly, I have been successful in it. And let me give you some backstory just to make sure you understand that this was a long process for us. And again, as I've shared, you know, we've tried 60,000 different things to do to teach leadership. And I've got to share one story to share that, you know, I'm just not as effective as I would like to believe. I remember one year I'm trying to get my young women to be verbal leaders. I'm giving them all these different examples of what is not verbal leadership or not leadership in my opinion. So uh, what I will say is, listen, if you're reading in the press one day, I consider you a leader by example. What that means is you're, you're not a leader. What you are is a great player. There's nothing wrong with being a great player, but please don't think if I say you lead by example, I'm actually giving you leadership compliments because I'm not. What I'm saying is you're a great player, but of course, we all pretend that leadership is such a critical quality. If there's a great player out there, I, you know, I'm going to pretend you lead by example. So all of a sudden, your ego soars like a hawk because now you're not just a great player. You're also a leader by example, even though you and I both know you're, a, you're an absolutely useless leader. You, know, you don't take responsibility for dragging anyone with you. You just play well. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, every team needs great players. So all of a sudden, I've got all these kids becoming verbal leaders. And I'm listening, I'm thinking, you know, yeah, this is, this is pretty good because, you know, I hear them, you know, leading verbally and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Finally, about halfway to near the end of the season, the senior year of this one player, the whole team of actual leaders, there were three or four of them, come into my office and said, Anson, listen, 
would you please get so-and-so to shut up? And I said, you know what? You're right. I want to shoot her myself. I mean, she is driving me nuts as well. And so this is obviously, I'm, I'm making this into a comedy. It's not a comedy. And so basically I pulled her aside. I said, you know what? Why don't we let, you know, so-and-so give the pregame chat or, and on the field, why don't you let uh, her sort of take over the verbal leadership responsibilities? We don't want too many cooks in the kitchen. And, and so I tried to pull her down because she didn't have a capacity to say the right things, to say it with a correct tone, to find her leadership voice. There's so many different elements in being a great leader. And so I pulled this you know, young woman aside and just had her become more of a, a role player in terms of leadership. So I look back on all these failures, and I'm always searching for things to do to try to take my kids to their potential. And I'm reading a New York Times Magazine article about this woman that attended Columbia to study Russian literature and Russian poetry. Before she got there, Columbia hired this extraordinary Russian exile poet by the name of Joseph Brodsky. Brodsky comes into the room with his PhD candidates and his master's candidates, and he says right out of the gate, I expect you guys to memorize reams of Russian poetry and Russian literature. Uh, he wants rote memorization. That's correct. Yeah. He wants rote memorization. And there's a rebellion among these Columbia intellectuals that are insulted that what this professor that clearly doesn't understand the American educational system is asking them to do. I mean, poetry and literature is something you memorize as a you know an elementary school child. This is not for a PhD candidate in Russian literature. And so they all develop this cabal and they go storming back into his office and basically say, Professor Brodsky, I'm sorry, but I don't think you understand where you are. This is Columbia. This is one of the world's elite universities. We are among the elite students at an elite university studying for our PhDs and masters. And please understand that this isn't something that we expected to have to do. We would rather, and you know, she would recite the different things she expected of Brodsky. And he said, well, basically, if you guys don't memorize this stuff, uh, none of you guys get your PhDs and your master's. And they all went slinking out of the room and got to work. Then she talks about how memorizing this Russian literature and Russian poetry transformed her, transformed her cerebrally, transformed her emotionally. It became a part of what they talked about as students outside of the classroom. It became a part of what they felt when they read something in Russian about the different aspects of, of literature that this uh, extraordinary poet was trying to teach them. And she said it absolutely transformed her. So I'm thinking, you know what, I'm going to give this a shot. Because for years with, you know, one try after another, I'm trying to teach leadership and character and, and nothing seemed to work. You know, we would have these, and I'll just select a simple cliche, you know, one of our core values was going to be we work hard or something. And what a cliche, as if that's inspiring. It's not inspiring. So what we did is we took all of our core values and we attached a motivational quote to it. We had all the kids memorize them all. They have to recite them publicly in the preseason. They have to recite them with me before every single player conference. And then they have to evaluate each other against them as peer evaluators, which I also review with all of the kids in the team. And it transformed us. So all of a sudden, just like with this woman's experience at Columbia, memorizing Russian literature and Russian poetry, transforming her, this stuff transformed us. And then all of a sudden, I'm looking at this impact my culture in the most positive way. I'm thinking back to my own upbringing. I was raised a Catholic. What do we Catholics do when we're young kids? We're memorizing catechism. And so there are all these cliches that we can spout out, which is basically 
theology, and we're experts in our Catholic theology. Uh, we can answer anyone's question on, you know, whether this is a sin and that's not a sin. There are no gray areas. Why? Because, you know, we've been trained in Catholic theology. And how are we trained? By memorizing reams of it. So now I'm looking back at all these different organizations that have you memorize different things. I'm thinking, yes, this is transformational. Obviously, poems like If are great things to memorize because there's so many elements in there that are so positive, especially when you're down and out, that give you something to hold on to with this resilience quality. Because words for me are important. Words have great meaning. And so for me, this was transformational and it really changed my culture in the most positive way. Talking about your culture, as I, as I was walking in, it looks like on the turf pitch on Hooker Field that there are some, some kids who are, are maybe intramural or, or club players, and they're doing 1v1s. They have the culture of, of UNC soccer, even though they don't necessarily have the technical ability. They understand and appreciate that part of the game here is taking risks and playing 1v1s. And, you know, there's a, a famous UNC alumni, Michael Jordan who's noted for saying there is no I in team, but there is in win. And you yourself are known, renowned as an irascible competitor, both from, from Teague and the stories of you playing roller hockey. And while you cannot necessarily build leadership or just magically get people to improve their character, one way that you've found to get people to move beyond the cliches and actually put in more effort, work harder, is by creating a competitive cauldron. How is that public view of competitiveness within the group, how has that helped people achieve their potential? If I had to pick uh, two aspects of my program as the most critical aspects for our success, I would pick the cauldron and I would pick the core values as the two most critical platforms in development for us here at the University of North Carolina. The cauldron uh, has been an extraordinary tool for me, and I stole it from Dean Smith. Dean Smith, our legendary former basketball coach that was actually the college coach of Michael Jordan, was an extraordinary man, and his culture, his athletic culture still lives here because I'm a, an acolyte of Dean Smith, as is Roy Williams, our current uh, basketball coach, who was a JV player for him and then an assistant coach. And that's in the water here. And he was just an extraordinary man. And he would have no issue inviting me to come watch his team's practice if I was interested. And I would bring my entire staff. I would just be in awe at the organization of his typical practices. He would actually have a manager come over to where I was sitting with my staff. And they would hand each of us, these managers would hand us a practice schedule to the minute. So, you know, at you know, 4 p.m., the warm-up would begin at 4.12 they would do this drill at 4.24. They would shift to this at 4.36 would be a water break. for Precision. Two. Yes. And all of a sudden, the game clock is on. And I'm looking at this sheet that they handed me. And I'm looking at the game clock. He is following this to the minute. I'm thinking, man, this is unbelievable. Because I was kind of casual, you know, when I throw together, together a practice. And, and then all of a sudden, I'm looking at these managers scattered around the floor, and they're recording everything. If a guy hit or missed a shot, you would see this manager recorded. If they boxed out on a rebound or failed to, you would see this recorded. If they're playing 3v3s, 4v4s, 5v5s, there were winners and losers. I mean, there was so much data recorded by all these assistant managers scattered around the floor. And then all of a sudden, Dean, at the end of practice, would gather the troops together to give his final address, and you would see all these assistant managers sprint to the scores table. 
There, the head manager would compile that day's practice data, and then you'd see the head manager scrambling to rank the players for that practice. And all of a sudden, Dean would finish addressing the troops. He'd turn around. By this time, the head manager would have ranked the 15 players in practice from literally 1 to 15. The first five can leave the shower immediately. The next, you know, five are sprinting a bit. The last five are sprinting until the end of recorded time. And I'm thinking, holy cow, what extraordinary accountability. So now everything counts. Everything counts. And so we stole it. We soccerized it. We took it to a new level. That became the cauldron. And the cauldron is basically a competition in every single practice. We post these things before the next practice. Uh, we've got 28 different competitive categories. The players, when they come to the next practice, if you watch my team come to practice, they all go right by the bulletin board, and they're just checking to see how they're doing. And, of course, no one is at number one in all categories. In fact, they're scattered through the competitive mm -hmm. cauldron. And so uh, talk about immediate feedback, because obviously if you've got a 30 player roster, like most of us have coaching at a collegiate level between, you know, 20 and 30, uh, you don't have time to give feedback after every practice. Mm -hmm. You're certainly trying to give as much feedback as possible, but you can't give consistent feedback. But the thing the cauldron does, it gives you extraordinary feedback. And then you get to decide where you want to live. Do you want to live at the bottom of this cauldron or at the top? So all of a sudden your competitive fire and fury start to come out of you and through you as you're competing to basically climb in this environment. And one of my favorite stories about this of all time, and this is so appropriate for me to be chatting with you about this right now, was from Danielle Egan. Danielle Egan is now named Danielle Reyna. Her son, Gio, just scored a goal for a Borussia Dortmund as a teenager mm -hmm. in a critical game. I mean, this is one of the greatest American players of all time already because of his achievements. So this girl played for me. Obviously, she married Claudio following her collegiate life with us. And now she's producing international caliber children, which is also extraordinary. But she was on a youth national team tour of Europe with Clive Charles, the famous former Portland coach, obviously right next to Vancouver, where you're living. And Clive was one of our rivals, and obviously this is during a period when we just won and won and won. I mean, that was a stretch. I think even Daniel was a part of the stretch where we won nine national championships in a row. So Daniel's a part of this, just not just dynasty, but I mean thick dynasty where you win every year. And all of a sudden, and I can't remember if they were in Holland or Germany or wherever they were, but they lose. They lose to either the Dutch or the Germans. And Clive, who's a great guy and a great coach, walks up to Danielle in his wonderful spirit and says, Hey, Danielle, you know, what does it feel to finally lose something? And apparently, and Clive called me after this, and he was just chuckling the whole time. He says, Anson, the girl turned to look at me, and she said, You know, Clive, at North Carolina, we lose in practice every day. And what she was referring to was the cauldron, because that's the way our kids develop. They develop through failure. And then you get, you get to make a decision on what you're going to do with this failure. Yep, you can mope and whine and complain about it. You can, you know, produce a you know, collection of excuses. Or you can do what most of the kids here do, which is, you know what? That's it. I've got to figure out what I did wrong, and I'm going to come back stronger the next time. And there's this constant battle in our training environments to have these kids constantly win, which obviously develops an extraordinary resilience. Because resilience isn't just succeeding. Resilience is failing Gathering yourself together, obviously, you know, you're crushed for a while and then you come back. And that's that fight to get back that's a demonstration of your resilience. 
And so that story about Danielle, but also now with her pedigree, with what you know she's doing in terms of raising her own children. So please don't tell me. And the Reina household between Claudio, one of the greatest male players of all time, and Danielle, one of our great players, please don't tell me that the water in their home is just this lukewarm stuff that doesn't affect you. No, no, there's a boil in that home about, yeah, yeah, you lost, you know, no compassion for them, you know, pick yourself up, decide what you're going to do. You know, does this really mean something to you? And so I'll tell you, that sort of stuff, I think, has a huge impact on development. Is it getting harder to find players that thrive in the cauldron? We live in a, a time of participation awards. Kids don't even get grades in schools anymore. You know, in the business world, as the millennials came in, managers were talking about how lazy they were and how they couldn't relate to them. And, you know, so I wonder two things. Is it getting harder to find players who thrive in a competitive environment? Or is it just more important for executives, leaders, coaches to have emotional intelligence, you know, the, the experience that you went through from learning how to coach women compared to men, is that just table stakes for leadership these days? Well, the culture does change. And one thing that's cool about being in a university environment is we're surrounded by experts. And so what happens every four years, the athletic department brings in the resident expert in sociology or psychology, and they lecture us. And they lecture us on the kids that we're training. My favorite lecture was actually in 2012. We brought over our resident sociologist, and this person's first slide was just brilliant, and that explained to me the group we were training. And the reason I'll never forget it is because he had two slides up there. The first slide was had the date 1969 on it. The reason it so resonates with me is that's the year I graduated from high school. So it's 1969, and he's explaining with this lecture the sort of kids we're dealing with. It's 1969. The kid comes home from school. He's got all Fs on his report card, and the parents are screaming at the kid. The next slide is 2012, basically the year he was lecturing. And the kid comes home from school with all Fs on his report card, and now you see the parents screaming at the teacher. So what's happening right now, we are absolutely ruining our children. And the way we're ruining them is we're protecting them from the chaos of the universe by basically making excuses for them, blaming everyone and their mother for their own failures. And of course, it's destroying them. Now, your question about, well, is it getting harder and harder to find these gritty kids that, you know, embrace the challenge, embrace failure, take responsibility for failure, and then obviously with resilience and grit and competitive fire, fight their way back? Is it harder and harder and harder to find those kids? No, they're out there. There are still collections of parents that are doing things the right way. There are still parents that even if they think their kids are a bit spoiled, they'll look at our culture and say, you know what? I would love to send my kid into that culture because for all the things and ways that I've failed, this culture is not going to fail them. Because if there is an environment where you can fail successfully and not get damaged, it's athletics. It doesn't really matter if you win or not in an athletic event. It doesn't really matter. There's some things that do matter. Your character matters or your success academically matters. But sport, you know, are you kidding me? No, if you, you know, if you don't succeed athletically, no big deal. It doesn't scar you. So what a wonderful environment where you're invited to fail, and when you do, you get to demonstrate that you can survive it, and you are resilient. So, yep, there are enough kids out there that come into this environment. By the way, they know about this environment before they get here, because my colleagues, in an effort to try to dissuade them from coming here, try to pretend like with this sort of oppressive 
cutthroat, win-at-all-cost culture, they're not going to enjoy it. And what they don't understand is our kids love it because we don't take ourselves seriously. Heck, this past weekend, we had a three-day ID camp, Friday night, three uh, sessions on Saturday, Sunday morning, and we introduced all the kids from all over the country to the cauldron in a way because everything was about winning and losing, and they loved it. The parents loved it. Their kids weren't pampered. They weren't having their rear ends kissed for the entire session. And yes, the evolution of the parents gotten worse. You're right. We went from helicopter parents to snowplow parents. I mean, so the helicopter parent obviously is, you know, measuring every pulse of their lives, hovering over them to make sure they're not hurt. And the snowplow parents are even more aggressive. They're in front of the player, pushing every obstacle out of the way. So what's uh, fascinating for me is, yeah, the parents are getting worse, but there are enough good parents out there doing the right thing. And we're getting enough kids where we're still having a great time and the culture is still very good because of these extraordinary parents and the kids that they entrust to us. I think as you would say, there must be something in the water here because I think in your own journey, you've made North Carolina home. And my supposition is that it's a place where there's enough freedom for you personally to define your own path to experiment. You know, I would say when you were coaching the World Cup, and you finally won, and your sense wasn't of joy, but of relief. And then you sort of groomed a successor and had an exit plan because you didn't want to be involved in the, in the politics and BS, the blowing sunshine required at that level. And then, you know, you had some luck too, right? I mean, you had, you had family here in spite of the fact that you grew up sort of all over the world. You know, then when Stanford came calling, your mom said, don't do it. So, you know, that's, that's a little bit of luck and an environment. But you had seen the world. You had childhood on basically every continent. And how did you recognize that this is an environment that you would personally thrive in, that you could take risk in? You know, and one example I, I want to give before you answer it is, you know, that in 1986, you had a new boss, John Swafford, and you wanted him to split the program into men's and women's so that you could just take the women. And, and he said no. And then three years later, you, you figured out how to do it anyway. To me, that's an, an example of it was an environment where you, you felt comfortable taking risk and you had enough freedom, enough rope to hang yourself with, which I think is for people who, who want to be leaders and are entrepreneurial, they sort of thrive on having sufficient rope. Well, when I got here, I couldn't believe where I landed. And I'll give you my progression because I don't want you to think that this was some extraordinary plan. It wasn't. I went to one of these ritzy Swiss boarding schools in Fribourg, Switzerland. And what's interesting about these kinds of boarding schools, the expectation when you go to this kind of school is you end up going Ivy or small Ivy. And then that justifies the fortune that your parents are paying to educate you in one of these Swiss schools. And so when I was uh, applying to colleges, uh, my first choice of schools was Bowdoin College in Maine. My second choice was Dartmouth, also obviously high in New England, and then uh, Wesleyan in Connecticut. So those are my first three choices. My backup school was St. Mary's University in San Antonio, Texas, which was the, the Marianist University for the Marianist teaching order that was my Catholic teaching order at La Villa Saint-Jean in Fribourg, Switzerland. So obviously, uh, they had to take me if I didn't get into those three schools. To make a long story short, I was rejected at uh, my first choice, Bowdoin. I was rejected at my second choice, Dartmouth. I was rejected at my third choice, Wesleyan. So... I'm off to St. Mary's University in San Antonio, Texas. I go down there, and of course, I have never spent much time in the United States. I don't know anything about the American culture, but I've been able to adapt to you know, almost every culture because every three years we move somewhere. 
And so I'm now all of a sudden in San Antonio, Texas. At the time, it was the murder capital of the United States. This is one rough town. And every single weekend, I have near-death experiences for basically... It's my fault most of the time. Yeah, which you kind of enjoy. Yeah, no, absolutely, because I'm a high risk taker. I have no issue with violence. I can survive fights because I have a wonderful relationship with pain. But this was like, I'm going to get killed here because my mouth would talk me into situations my fists couldn't fight their way out of. And, and one of the worst moments is I joined the rugby team there. And I love rugby. I've played you know rugby most of my life. And so, of course, after a rugby match, you celebrate in a local bar somewhere. And we're walking into this bar with my entire rugby team. And one of my, I think, my tight head prop, the biggest guy on my team, some cowgirl, as she's walking out, gets miffed. She turns around, walks back into the bar. And, of course, she knows everyone in the bar. And all of a sudden, they all come pouring out. And now there is a brawl in the parking lot. Tragically for us, some of the, her boyfriends brought out pool cues and so now, the one thing that's wonderfully noble about a cowboy is they do believe in one-on-one. They don't gang up on you. So there's sort of a nobility when the cowboy fights you. But I'm looking around. We're not winning very many of these fights. The only fight I can tell we're actually really winning is the tight head prop. And I'm looking at him, and he's fighting this one-armed cowboy. And much to the cowboy's credit, he's doing a bloody good job fighting our tight head prop. And I'm trying to talk my guy into not beating me to death because I am fluent and I managed to sort of stave off disaster there. But that's just one example. So just one day after another, it's just I'm walking back from a diner late at night and this beer can hits me in the back of the head from a passing car. I grab a rock, throw it into the back of the car. This arm is a gun, so I had no issue hitting the car. The car stops, backs up. Six pour out. Three of them are girls, three of them are boys, and of course... Now, because the girls are with him, the boys have to beat me to death. So now I'm lying on the sidewalk, you know, bleeding to death from, you know, this fight with, you know, the local residents. So anyway, it was just one issue after another every weekend. And I'm thinking, I've got to leave because I didn't know that these people with boots and belt buckles actually existed. I thought I was on a movie set half the time. But no, that's what they wear. And yeah, they've got gun racks in the back of their trucks. And this is a culture. I wasn't going to survive it. So to stay alive, I transferred here to the University of North Carolina. That's what saved me. So finally, in this idyllic environment here in Chapel Hill, I fell in love with everything. I fell in love with the university itself. I fell in love with everything. And of course, you're so well-versed in everything I've done. Jumped into the intramural program, played every sport imaginable, played soccer, played rugby, played absolutely everything and loved my life here in every respect. And so all of a sudden, this grew on me. This became home. I want to go full circle on the, uh, the Bowden story. So Two Augusts ago, I got a call from Bowdoin, and they want me to come speak. And I said, I'm not, I'm not interested. And the provost, a woman, was just shocked, Coach, uh, I don't understand. Why aren't you interested in coming to speak for us? I said, well, you know, in the spring of 1969, I applied to your university, and you guys blew me off, so I'm still a little bit pissed. I'm not really interested in speaking. I said, but if your admissions director, Bowdoin Stationery, writes me a letter of apology for the egregious error you guys made in the spring of 1969, and I will consider coming to speak there. Well, to make a long story short, I did end up speaking there. I, I spoke three different times. I began every speech with the story, but they still wouldn't write a letter of apology. So I charged them an enormous speaking fee in order to go up there, which they easily paid. But anyway, so for me, just like with Danielle Egan, my success has been built on basically different failures. I am here because I couldn't survive 
San Antonio. I am here because Bowden rejected me, Dartmouth rejected me, Wesleyan rejected me. And I am here also because this is my home state. Every three years, we'd spend six months on a tobacco farm in Lewisburg, North Carolina. I am a North Carolinian. And when I got back here to come to school, it felt like home. And I have loved every day here. When I graduated, I had an English and philosophy degree, which meant I was surely going to starve to death. I wanted to starve to death here. I found a woman that was successful, professional dancer. We got married the summer I graduated. We moved down here. She got a job immediately. And I have loved living and raising my family here in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. You know, I think the way that you openly talk about your failures and your missteps, you know, there's a, a leader which you have acknowledged admiring greatly, Winston Churchill, both for his oratorical ability, but also for his leadership skills. But I think he's regarded as, as a leader who has sort of overcome his imperfections to become a great leader. And whether or not you believe, still believe in great men theory or not, and, and their impact on history, I think that one of the responses to great men theory around the fact that we now live in a time where there's antipathy to excellence is something that you have worked hard against to try and create excellence here at the University of North Carolina. There's a book by a businessman, a very successful one, named Ben Horowitz, who's a member of uh, Andreessen Horowitz, the venture capital firm now, called The Hard Thing About Hard Things. And what he talks about are the difference between wartime and peacetime CEOs. And I probably don't need to explain that concept to you, because you seem to have done both. How have you been successful both in, in wartime and peacetime? Is it, is it just delegation? Is it Chris Dukar across the hall? Is it Bill Palladino? How have you managed that? Well, there's, there's no question you've got to surround yourself with, with good people. I took a leadership course from Gallup years ago, maybe 20, 25 years ago. And I really learned something from this leadership course. Basically, what it said is, you know, make sure the people that you've surrounded yourself with are strong where you are weak. I've always been able to do that. I'm like a shark with blood in the water. Bill Palladino is this warm, incredibly nice, connective man. And so for me, that balance was uh, having Bill there to pick up the pieces when I blew up the room. So I've always surrounded myself with those kinds of people. I have also recognized all the areas where I'm not effective. And I have no issue admitting whenever something doesn't go right. And I think what benefits me with my players is whenever there's a loss, certainly when I'm addressing the press following a loss, and by the way, Roy Williams is a master of this. He always takes full responsibility for his losses. He doesn't throw his kids under the bus. He doesn't blame them. He takes full responsibility. That's also a Dean Smith thing. And I've always been very good at that. I can always point to something during the week in preparation for a match or something during the match where I thought I made a mistake and I always address that. But that's also a practiced mental skill that you've developed where having a sanguine reaction to losing because you vision yourself through the negative emotions of losing and then if you lose, you're able to deal with it. If you win, no harm done by going through that process. There's absolutely no question about that. But also what I'm trying to teach my players is to also take responsibility. And then what I see happening among my all-time greats is the same thing. What I hear them doing when they're addressing the press is a similar sort of statement. Yes, you know, uh, I think there was another standard in me. I didn't achieve it today. This is my fault. We could have done this. And, and then all of a sudden they start taking responsibility themselves. 
And there's absolutely no question, the more people that take absolute responsibility for failure will, I think, put you in a better position to consistently succeed. And so I want my kids to feel safe here. Not that I'm not challenging them in practice. Not that, you know, they're not looking at the bulletin board and like Daniel Legan, they're losing in practice every day. Not that they're not experiencing this sort of failure and taking responsibility in practice. I don't want them to ever think that they're not going to be safe and that I'm not going to have their back. I always will. And they can feel safe with that. I've been touched by so many different experiences. One of my favorites was uh, we were on maybe that streak of nine in a row. There's an enormous pressure here to get to the national championship game and then, of course, to win it. And this team of wonderful seniors, we didn't win. And they all gathered in my office the day after we, we lost, and they were apologizing to me. It was just an incredible feeling for me because what they were basically saying is, you have taught us to be incredibly responsible and we are so sorry that we didn't win, basically for you. And it just touched me because they don't have to win for me. But the fact that they wanted to take responsibility for it was extraordinary. And I still have an image in my mind of those players sitting in my office taking responsibility. And now I'm looking at the arc of their lives. These are extraordinarily successful women. And that's a critical quality. The critical quality is to, for you to take responsibility for everything. Not to have an excuse for this, an excuse for that, but to take absolute responsibility. And I'm following the arc, and I've got an image of all five of these women in my head, and I'm watching their lives right now. They are living extraordinary lives. And it just warms the cockles of my heart that this lesson is something that has, I guess, been taught effectively because I didn't want them to feel like they had to win for me. But the fact that they took responsibility was just an extraordinary statement of who they were, but also who they were going to become. Also, you mentioned the, the black and white of, of Catholicism. You know, I think it's, it's also small C Catholicism and the Japanese notion of wabi-sabi that you need to be comfortable with, with gray. And so, yes, you take absolute responsibility. You appreciate accountability. You don't mind the competitive cauldron. You have high standards. You, you have a vision of excellence. But at the same time, you, while not being satisfied with where you are, there's an opportunity to choose to be content and that you can, you can live with uncertainty. And that's a normal thing in the world. And so I think that a lot of the things that you have taught through athletics to help people achieve their potential and be successful, sort of thread those things together. Well, I appreciate you making that statement because that's certainly what I try to do. So in some ways, you've, you've turned an avocation into something which you can be proud of as, as an intellectual pursuit. A lot of people compare your recruiting letters and your senior appreciation letters to the writing of Bezos and, and Buffett and their, their shareholder letters. Or, and you've really, yeah, you have an English and philosophy degree that you were planning to use in law school, but really you've used reading as well as, as a path to knowledge. Do you have any tips on how people can be better writers? Writing's interesting. I've got three books out there that obviously we try to share what we've learned here. Uh, one of them I wrote with Gloria Averbush, who was the mother of a player that played for me. Uh, Yael. Yael. And I love that book. I'm talking to Yael in a couple of oh, weeks. Oh, you are? Yeah, uh, well, the, actually you. on the 19th. And, well, talk and about... she had great things to say about you as a coach that influenced her from being resilient and teaching her great character lessons. 
Well, that's very kind of you to say, because I loved writing that book with her mother. And of course, I had opportunities to edit it. So I'm going through these rewrites and Gloria did a great job with the book. There weren't too many edits I had to make. And I love that collaboration because in writing the book, you'd learn a lot from teaching, but you also learn a lot about what you're thinking from your own writing. And actually, Gloria did the book the way we're doing this right now. She would interview me. And then she'd put together different chapters. We'd review them and then obviously assemble them in the book. And that was a book I wrote for players. Uh, that was the vision of a champion. I wrote a book before that for coaches with Tim Nash. That book is still selling in volleyball and in all these different sports because the cauldron's in there. So mm -hmm. the cauldron's an important chapter in training soccer champions. And even though the book has a lot of chapters that are absolutely out of date, a publisher called me and said, Anson, we want to reprint the book and you don't have to touch anything because we know it's going to sell. And I'm thinking you're crazy because, you know, some of the stuff is, is obsolete. And they said, no, we're just going to reprint it with your permission. And they did. And it's still selling like hotcakes. It's selling in a lot of different sports because of the cauldron. Tim Carruthers, a writer for Sports Illustrated, was kind of jaded from writing about the NBA and asked me if he could spend a year with us writing uh, his book. Came down, he spent five years with us. He had so much fun. And it was originally over a thousand pages, his book about our culture. I guess he condensed it down to 400 or something. And that book is still selling. So for me, these books are important. And uh, what I practiced in certainly the two books I was a part of was making sure that it was written well enough so it communicates well. But here's what's interesting about right now, and you will appreciate this. Because of text messaging and email, I am writing every day. And mine aren't, you know, just a collection of emojis. I actually write something in a text message and I try to connect with the person I'm texting. No better example than last night. I'm watching the U.S. beat Canada to win CONCACAF. And I always make it a point to write a short note to all of my players that were on the field. And even a player that signed with me and then didn't come, Lindsay Horan, she signed with us and then went to play for PSG. Because these are all kids that basically were either Tar Heels or signed to be Tar Heels. And I always make an effort to write something that communicates effectively. So for me, this writing thing is something you've got to constantly practice. But in our modern culture, you can practice it because email is available to you. Text messaging is available to you. And as long as you try to communicate something effectively with the right language, I think that's the modern practice art is the modern technology. In terms of practicing and continuous improvement, one thing that you definitely do is teach your players to be comfortable with the unknown. You yourself has sort of described yourself as a, as a chemist, where you're just running various experiments and figuring out what works. A sort of critical view of that, depending on how you perceive it, is your former player, Janet Rayfield, has sort of said, oh, I think Anson's sort of trying on personalities, figuring out what works. And there are still some skeptics who think that, you know, you're just putting on a show that you're an actor and you're doing it just to motivate your players. My view from reading all of the books that you just described and looking at your work is that you actually just embrace complexity and that one of the things that you try and teach your players around being resilient and adaptable from sort of an evolutionary perspective, that that's not easy for people to reconcile with, that most people are sort of uncomfortable with change and, and think saying I made a mistake and don't want to do it that way anymore and that I'm just running an experiment isn't very safe. And my impression is that you're just comfortable with that and you're open to change and adaptable. So how do you evaluate your, your own work and make sure that you're improving? 
Well, first of all, you're spot on. I am an introvert. And what's interesting about all of us that are introverts, we have to perform all the time. So to some extent, what you're sharing is true. I'm not, I guess, a natural public person. And this is sort of interesting. My wife got very sick in 2012. She had renal failure and she gets exhausted quickly. That year, actually, 2012, she didn't even make the championship weekend because she was at home and she was just suffering. What was really cool about that period, and Melissa knows I talk about this regularly, so this doesn't offend her at all. We would go to a party, and after about 15 or 20 minutes, I'm trying to escape the party. I would rather go home and open a book. And all of a sudden, I walk up to the host and say, you know, uh, I'm sorry, but we're leaving now. But thank you for your hospitality. And of course, it was an incredible way to escape because they all thought that, you know, Melissa was feeling mm -hmm. sick or were too fatigued to carry on. And she was fine. She could have stayed another hour or two, but I wanted to leave. But I used her as, a, as an escape hatch because I am an introvert. I'm just not comfortable in those social environments. No one can believe it. They all argue with me, you're not an introvert. Because what they see is they see my public persona. They see speaking engagements I do on a consistent basis. They see me run a practice or run a pregame. And they just think this is ridiculous that I would ever even claim to be an introvert, but I am an introvert because what everyone does see is a performance. It is an absolute performance. Now, just because it's a performance doesn't mean it doesn't have some truth in it. Mm -hmm. Of course it has truth in it because I think to be a good actor, you're drawing on some real emotion. You're drawing on some real personal experiences. You're drawing on things that matter to you. So don't denigrate the performance because uh, in order to give an exceptionally good one, it's got to be based on truth. I was watching the Oscars last night and you're here, you know, the day after the Oscars. And there were some incredible statements by people that were being made about what makes an extraordinary performance or an extraordinary movie. And what makes an extraordinary performance and movie is a personal truth. That's what I try to do. So is it a performance sometimes? Yes, but it comes from something that resonates with me because trust me i wouldn't be able to pull it off if i didn't genuinely believe it there's a book that was popular in the silicon valley and technology scene in the last couple of years called radical candor which is this very common sense notion that you have lived and learned from your your days as a door-to-door -door insurance salesman <laughs> around the notion of being honest and giving feedback that's authentic and truthful and is from your experience. And so I think that you're spot on there. Well, let me share, speaking about that, I think the one quality my players do appreciate, certainly the longer they live, is my brutal honesty. And what I always let them know is if you don't want the answer, please don't ask me the question. So it's like uh, the cliche we use when we're uh, when we bring our kids in for player conferences. Uh, average players want to be left alone. Good players want to be coached. Great players want the truth. I've coached a lot of great players, and every one of them wanted the truth. The one that wanted the most brutal truth was Michelle Akers. I used to have these player conferences with her when I was her national team coach, and she would actually get upset with me if I didn't criticize her enough in the player conference. And finally, in exasperation one day, I said, Michelle, you know, you're pretty good. It's hard for me to keep finding areas of your game where there's some cracks you've got to wallpaper over because you're a pretty complete player. And if you look at this extraordinary woman, I mean, 
anyone would be hard pressed to find a crack in that armor. But out of service to the young women I'm coaching, I think what's critical for them is if they really want to know the truth, I can give it to them. And then the question is, can you handle the truth? <laughs> so then I've got to figure out a way to phrase it in a way that doesn't blow them up. Yeah. For those of you listening who, who haven't seen Michelle Akers play, imagine if Busquets could actually score. <laughs> <laughs> Great analogy. Yeah, well done. One more book reference as we, we finish up. Clay Christensen wrote a book around this idea of the innovator's dilemma, which is just that the notion that it's hard to stay successful because to stay successful in business, you often have to kill your existing business or cannibalize it to find the, the next success. You've had a, a life mission of growing the sport of women's soccer, and you've succeeded. It's happened here in the U.S., and it's happened globally. You know, lots of pundits during the last Women's World Cup are saying the U.S. is in trouble. All of these countries with real soccer cultures that have existed since the game started are now investing in the women's game. So, you know, you see the way Spain plays. They've got a real national identity, and England is getting better. And the U.S., their time is up. Their time of just having big, strong athletes and running over everyone. You know, it's the U.S. that actually taught the Germans gegenpressing, right, in the semifinals of the World Championships in 1991. And Liverpool and Jurgen Klopp are, are still executing on your philosophy to win the Premier League now. That sort of idea that there's more parity in the NCAA, there's competition coming for the U.S. You used to say, we'll recruit only players from the U.S., and there are a couple of players on your roster now that are not from the U.S., and you've also talked a lot about futsal being a unique opportunity that the U.S. has with all of its empty gymnasiums to really improve their technical capacity and the way that they play the game. So how do you think about whether it's your successor here or the future of, of U.S. soccer and the University of North Carolina, how do you think about solving the innovator's dilemma? Well, first of all, thank you for raising Clay Christensen, because I'm actually a Mormon. I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and of course, uh, he taught at Harvard. The person that built the stadium is a Harvard professor that ended up CEO of Harris. His daughter's played for me. And he has huge respect for Clay and also that book that he wrote. I am reading one of Clay's books right now. It's about the evolution of Rick's College in the BYU, Idaho, and about the evolution of the collegiate education. And so he's someone that I'm, I'm trying to learn from, but you've given me an opportunity to talk about you know, my faith. I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and a lot of the way I coach, actually, I have pulled out of my high priest lessons. I mean, it's there's so much applicability between the two. But I appreciate the, the way you've sort of phrased and structured this, because you're giving me an opportunity to sort of uh, share where I think we can go. First of all, uh, one thing that's always irritated me about a lot of U.S. soccer's leadership is because of the people they hire with our player development platforms are always looking to Europe. And so the European model is the model they know, so it's the model they preach. And then, of course, these programs that are brought in, like the, the DA, the Development Academy, are structured after European models. And I just don't like what's happening. A lot of these people think the collegiate model is too old in the, uh, the United States. It's not going to work long term. And yet we've won four world championships with it. And I think our model is extraordinary, which is why I'm trying to figure out ways to preserve what we have, but also add pieces like futsal. Yes, I think we're built for futsal. Every elementary school, middle school, high school, College, YMCA, church has a gymnasium. 
and all you have to be is politically savvy enough to share gym time with the basketball players in there and the dodgeball players. And, and yeah, so let's get in there because the structures are built for us. And futsal is an amazing game for fundamental player development. But honestly, uh, the key for us is who we hire. The key for me here at University of North Carolina is who I've hired. I want this program to remain dynastic. And so the person I've brought in is someone I saw on a soccer field about six, seven, eight years ago. It was hard for me to recruit in North Carolina and compete nationally. That doesn't mean I wouldn't try. And all of a sudden, I'm watching this youth team play. And I keep looking down at the roster. And they were really playing, and it was from North Carolina. I'm thinking, what is going on here? Because obviously the teams from Southern California are dominant, win national championships consistently, as do teams from Texas and New York, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I couldn't believe the level of this team. And then, of course, I looked to the sideline, and it's the gentleman actually sitting behind you, a gentleman by the name of Damon Nahas. And with teams from North Carolina, basically, if you look at it from a national perspective, soccer desert, we're winning national championships, beating teams from Southern California. And this was just extraordinary for me. So obviously, looking at uh, what he was doing, I had to bring him in. He did. He's, he's here now. I love uh, Malcolm Gladwell. I've read all of his stuff. One of my favorite Malcolm Gladwell stories was the story of this rock band that jumps into a German beer hall at 10 p.m. And at 4 to 5 a.m., they finally finish their set. And they did this every night for like, I don't know, a year or two. Their development from playing every single night was the Beatles. That became the Beatles. Damon Nahas started a development academy in Raleigh, North Carolina, training 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, all the way through 17-year-olds in fundamental technical development. His expertise in a session is extraordinary. He can take a session, make it complex enough for the player to learn something, but simple enough to structure it in the practice itself when we brought him in, our culture was transformed the most positive way. Because not only do we have the elements that I've always believed in, there's a fusion now with his elements that I think could take us to a completely different world. So I think what's critical uh, is finding people that have a different vision and can teach it effectively. Because right now, in that age group, right now in this country, we're not serving it well. The American player development paradigm is upside down, and Damon is the one that was sharing this with me because he comes from the youth ranks. Right now, our top players are coaching the 16, 17, 18-year-olds, and yet Damon coached the 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12-year-olds. That's where your top coaches should be. And Damon and I, and I am a proponent of it now because of what he is teaching me about the way we have to reorganize the youth game. And so that's the future for the United States. That's where we where we have to go. We have to go there if we want to be able to be successful long-term. And so that fusion is the way uh, we're going to preserve the University of North Carolina because uh, when I retire, the exit plan for me is to make sure he's running this turf here. And uh, one thing I'm incredibly proud of is I don't care where you are, Lyon, you know, Paris Saint-Germain, we have developed more elite players than any spot on the face of the earth. And we've done it with all the tools that you and I have already talked about. But you have to keep changing. You have to keep changing. And when I brought him in, I did change. He runs our sessions. I have no issue with it. Doesn't mean I'm not occasionally stepping in to do a thing or two. But in running our sessions, I'm seeing where the kids are going. And that's what has to continue to happen. So the innovator's dilemma is exactly what you've got to do. You've got to look at your stuff. And if you think there's a better way, you blow it up. I've had no issues blowing up anything I've done that I didn't think was any good. 
I have had no issues with it. I'm not territorial or protective of the past. I want to be the present and the future. And so for me, that was a very easy adjustment to make. And I think that's what's critical for what we have to do in the United States is we have to figure out ways to stay on top. We are dynastic, but they are catching us. So we've got to make sure at every single level we're doing more and better uh, right now than Europe because they are certainly closing the gap. Well, setting the, the nationalistic view aside, I think that you should sleep well at night and be happy when you see things like the Atletico Madrid women filling the stadium because I think that your influence here in the U.S. with U.S. soccer, with the University of North Carolina, have catalyzed that growth globally. And so I want to say thank you for that. And it lets me live a life where my daughter has a real opportunity to be a professional soccer player. And that dream didn't exist 20 years ago. Well, thank you. And I'm not going to back off the other element about us bringing in the foreign kids. And let me share why we did. We can't recruit against Stanford. If they want a kid, they just gather her in and and so we're wiping out on one player after another. And obviously, if they don't go to Stanford, they end up at UCLA. So these are two powerhouses. If you look at the talent on the fields of those two programs, it's just extraordinary. So all of a sudden, I get a call from Mark Parsons, who signed basically my player, Crystal Dunn. And he's appreciated the fact that his first year, I said, the last place you should play Crystal is outside back. And he ignored me and played her at outside back, had a miserable season. And then he finally started a player where I said he should play her, like at the 10 or, you know, at a twin nine or something. And then his season was transformed. And he's never forgotten that he called me up and apologized for ignoring me after he signed my player. And then when he made the change, and so he felt like he owed me. So after we had, you know, finished striking out with, you know, the players that were at Stanford and UCLA, he basically delivered two English players to me, Alessio Russo and a lot to Wubin Moy. And the reason uh, we chased those two is because we kept striking out in the United States. And now we have a pipeline. It's a wonderful English pipeline, which I love. We got another one coming in this year. And we're going to keep that pipeline open for all the right reasons. But the reason is basically we want to compete. And we don't care where you're from. Would we love to have an elite American player? Yes. Do we still pour most of our resources into the American platform? Yes. But heck, if a brilliant European wants to join us, we will embrace them in a heartbeat because we want our environment to continue to remain the player development capital of the world. And Phil Neville and I are in touch about Alessia Russo. He's excited. He's bringing her into the She Believes Cup. And uh, he told me that if she impresses, he plans to invest in her and he will give her her first international cap next September or October, which we have no issue with, by the way, even though without her here, we're not going to be as good. But our uh, imperative is not just... Uh, it's player and human development That's first. correct. Yeah. Exactly right. And that we've always believed in that. So I'm very proud of her. So yes, we're, uh, we're open to the world. So if there's a Canadian up there in Vancouver, because by the way, one of the people I texted last night was John Fleming. We chased his daughter, Jessie. I love the way Jessie plays. I love everything about her. John and I have become friends. John told me she wanted to spend some time with Mia. During the game last night, I texted John and Mia and told Mia that uh, Jesse Fleming would love to spend some time with her as she finishes her degree at UCLA. Mia texted me back and said, absolutely no problem. Send her my phone number. So there was this triangle between me and John Fleming and Mia that is set up to let Jesse spend some time with Mia because I have so much respect for her game, but also for her father. And I tease him about this all the time that in a frozen wasteland developed such an elite player. 
and he takes it good naturedly as you are now as well. And uh, she's just an absolutely brilliant player, and I I respect and admire her. I look forward to introducing you to Freya Niccolo. Her mom played at Ole Miss. She doesn't turn five until April seventh this year, but she might might be willing to give a look at Carolina Blue. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, Tony, thank you. This was really enjoyable for me. Thank you very much, Anson. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us today on The Beautiful Game. We hope you also have some new ideas and inspiration to live, work, and play better. Please subscribe to get future episodes. And you can join the conversation with your host, Tony Niccolo, on Twitter at WeaselsFC. FC.